0: welcome to my okay. business contacts by my Pia. Welcome to a special podcast by Charles Adenetto.
1: Hello, this is an excerpt from the October 13, 2021 JP Roundtable. It was a conversation with April Elliott, who is the executive director of the Judicial Conduct Commission in Arizona, and Michael Devereaux, who is the new in-house attorney there. This is not available for CoJet. This is simply uh, if you're interested. Please enjoy.
2: This conference will now be recorded.
1: Okay, welcome to the October JP Roundtable. Uh, I see Michael Devereaux has joined us. Mr. Devereaux, do you have a camera?
3: I do. Give me
4: one sec.
1: We'll wait for April Elliott. Thank you uh, for joining us today. Absolutely. um, How long have you been at the the commission?
4: I've only been here just over a month.
1: And and we have been joined by uh, April Elliott. Thank you for joining us. Congratulations on your promotion. Thank you. Uh, So so tell us about your new position.
2: Okay, so I took over for Margaret Downey as uh, executive director for the Commission on Judicial Conduct. Uh, For the last about seven years prior to that, I had served as disciplinary counsel and was primarily responsible for the investigation of the bulk of the complaints that the Commission received. So now in uh, this role, I oversee the office. Um, I oversee my successor, uh, Michael Devereaux, who's also, uh, joined the conference and I'll let him introduce himself, uh, in a few minutes. Cause, uh, if any of you um, receive requests to respond to a complaint from the commission, it will, you will most likely be dealing with Michael on those. And the other thing that I do now is i wear another hat as staff director for the uh, judicial ethics advisory committee it is a supreme court committee and it sort of works a little bit opposite of the cjc in that uh, we uh, screen ethics inquiries from judges about their own prospective conduct to try and keep you out of trouble um, so that you don't get a complaint Um, and actually one of your uh, jps judge wismer uh, serves on that committee as well. And that uh, actually gets about, on average, 150 to 200 inquiries a year from judges, uh, judicial employees as well. And uh, also judicial candidates can make inquiries about um, their prospective conduct and receive advice. So that's that's the job I do now. And I'll let Michael uh, introduce himself and say a few words about him.
4: So good morning, everyone. So my name is Michael Devereaux. As April just said, and, and as I was talking about before, I joined the commission about a month or so ago. Uh, before then, I actually worked in Pima County uh, for uh, for Judge Christopher Browning in the Superior Court, and prior to that, I was a prosecutor in Indiana for a, a, a while. So that's that's my background, and, and most certainly uh, looking forward to dealing with everyone. All right.
1: Um, thank you. And. Uh, Ms. Elliott, uh, I did send you an email to, to get the conversation going and we don't have a formal agenda, uh, so just if anyone has any questions or uh, for Ms. Elliott or Mr. Devereaux, please just go ahead and ask, but I'm intrigued by the, the recent changes to the conduct code that does allow judges to uh, respond to statements made to clarify the record. Um, Can can you opine on on how that's going to work?
2: I have reservations about how that's going to work, actually. Um, So, for those of you who uh, aren't aware, and I don't know if uh, Judge Adonetto sent around um, uh, the order from the Supreme Court, uh, the changes to the code will take effect January 1st. And this came about, there was a Supreme Court committee, uh, the task force on countering disinformation, to make sure I <laughs> got that correct. Um, and they looked at some different things and wanted to make some amendments to the code to allow judges um, to essentially be on the same footing as judicial candidates to respond to certain attacks that were made um, because certainly in this and age um, with so much uh, disinformation or misinformation out there. Um, It has put the judiciary as a whole in this country um, under attack and undermining the public's confidence in that as an institution. So the task force wanted to um, make some changes to allow judges to respond to some attacks. And so what the what the code currently says. under Rule 2.10 is it does basically put some limitations on what a judge can or cannot say about not making a public statement that might reasonably be expected to affect the outcome or impair the fairness of a matter pending or impending in any court or making a non-public statement that might substantially interfere with a fair trial or hearing. So that particular portion of the code does not change. Um, but there are some comments um, and a few little additions to give the judges some guidance in responding to um, some character or other attacks that might be there. I think uh, there you go, Judge Adornettos put that up there. So it adds to Rule 1.2, which is the rule that talks about promoting confidence in the judiciary, um, and avoiding impropriety the appearance of impropriety. It adds a comment, um, and as you may remember way back, we'll take you way back to new judge orientation when you learned about the code, that there's sort of the, the canons which state the overarching principles, the rules with the black letter law, and then the comments which offer interpretation and guidance. So comment, the new comment seven to rule 1.2 uh, states A judge may respond to or issue statements in connection with allegations concerning the judge's conduct in the matter or to false, misleading or unfair allegations or attacks upon the judge's character or reputation. Consistent with rules 4.1 and 4.3 regarding judicial campaigns, a judge's response or statement at any time that counters attacks on the judge's actions, character or reputation may serve to restore or maintain public confidence in the judiciary subject to the requirements of Rule 2.10, Paragraph A. So that's gonna be the new um, addition to 1.2. And then 2.10 is going to uh, change subparagraph E a little bit um, to say that subject to the requirements of Paragraph A, a judge may respond directly or to a third party in writing via social media or broadcast media or otherwise to allegations in the media or elsewhere concerning the judge's conduct in a matter or to false misleading or unfair allegations or attacks upon the judge's character or reputation." Then it also modifies comment three to that same rule um, that says, depending on the circumstances, the judge should consider whether it may be preferable for a third party, Rather than the judge to respond or issue statements in connections with allegations concerning the judge's conduct in a matter, or to false, misleading, or unfair allegations or attacks upon the judge's character or reputation. And again, consistent with rules 4.1 and 4.3 regarding judicial campaigns, a judge's response or statement at any time that counters attacks on the judge's actions, character, or reputation may serve to restore or maintain public confidence in the judiciary, subject to the requirements of paragraph A so when i said i was a little bit hesitant earlier as to how this was going to work my concerns are that some judges are going to think that this is a license to say anything and it is not Um, you still are subject to um the confines of rule 2.10 a which say that your comments um if they're public or non-public cannot affect the outcome or impair the fairness of a matter that's pending or impending in any court, or if it's a non-public statement that might substantially interfere with a fair trial or hearing. So I think I'm going to have to be very careful in my training about this as we incorporate this into our new trainings, Um, and I see this honestly as something that is going to be fairly fact-specific going forward if someone has advice or wants needs advice about whether or not what they want to say in response to something is going to uh, be permissible it's going to depend on what the attack or um, statements are out there that the judge wants to respond to um, and then take a look at that and make sure that that doesn't um, run afoul of 2.10 a This does now put sitting judges on the same playing field as judicial candidates in being able to respond to their attacks regarding their character or reputation. Um, I will caution judges that just because you can comment doesn't mean that you should. That's something to probably take a look at. Um, And this isn't, you know, a license to respond to every disgruntled litigant that posts something negative about you on their social media page. Um, And please don't go start trolling um, your litigant's social media page because that is gonna probably run you afoul of Rule 2.9 C for conducting an improper uh, independent investigation. But if it basically makes its way to you um, and it has attacked your personal character Um, or reputation, or honesty, and you feel that it is severe enough that you want to respond, um, you are permitted to do so, again, provided that your comments still um, meet the requirements of Rule 2.10a. And as the staff director for the Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee, I am happy to answer any questions um, that someone has if they're thinking about responding to something, you know, send me what the what the, you know, what the attack is, what your proposed response is, and I'm happy to give you feedback on whether or not I believe that your response um, keeps within the, para- the new parameters under the code. Um, so happy to do that, and um, if anyone has maybe some more general questions about this, I'm happy to answer that as well.
3: Yeah, I do, April. This is Ken um, Canto Court. So Mm -hmm. most of the time, in you know, I've been in politics for a long time. It's about the character, not about a decision. At least at Mm other level, I can see it at the superior court level. It would be more of a decision. Um, Here, yeah, somebody might be disgruntled by, but they would say something like, you know, you're just in the hands of the uh, the multi-housing association or something like Mm -hmm. that. Those were the kind of attacks you'd probably see politically and. Is it would be improper to say this is just not true, it is not based on any fact, it is just you know a plain out lie?
2: I, I think that's absolutely as long as it's you know not specifically tied to a particular case, of course. Um, so, I, I, I can see that that probably this comes up in campaigns of you're in the back pocket of the landlords or yeah. um, you're in the back pocket of law enforcement, however. Um, so in those situations, I think you can respond to basically uh, you know address, you know, you can look at my record. I'm you know I'm not um, pro pro law enforcement or I'm not pro landlord. Um, and again, this um, it can be either through you or through a third party, such as I see um, Scott's on here. It can be through the court's public information officer as well.
3: No, but in a campaign, it would usually be a, a counterattack or yeah. answering attack on your um, flyers or on some kind of other media source. Right. So it wouldn't okay. be really proper for Scott to be being involved in our campaigns at all, unless sure. he wants to send the pieces for us.
2: <laughs> That's true. So if, for strictly campaign, it, it would definitely need to come through you or your committee. So um, and a lot of times uh, we've seen this. um I think it comes up more in the context of maybe higher up with attacking appellate or Supreme Court decisions, yeah. uh, where it is maybe more often the court's public information officer that's responding, or you have other people responding on behalf of the judge because the judge can't necessarily comment on um, the particular facts of a case, but um, a friend who's a lawyer or something may be able to draft something to educate the public of you know, this is how it really works, not how it's been portrayed. Things of but, that but nature, but is certainly is only, in a campaign, it, can, you know, put out that you know my opponent says X, and that's you know not true. So.
3: But would that only be allowed those circumstances where you have a third party? Do we, be, I mean, answer the the issue? Since it is not you as the judge making the statement, it's a third party
2: it is a third party and i think those are more specific statements when you have people like attacking a particular decision okay um, to where it would still be improper for the judge to comment because it might still be pending in some in some form or fashion but to have a lawyer or somebody else maybe explain like the third party mechanics of something
3: so the judge so the the judge could or the other lawyer could just say this guy was an illiterate um, jerk you know who didn't know what he was doing and of course the judge had no choice but to rule against him
2: uh, hopefully more eloquently than that <laughs> but yeah they might say you know you know the person who wrote x letter to the editor or x commentary phrased it as this but in reality this is how you know something like this works within the legal system and so this is why the judge's decision was justified in a particular way and and you see that from time to time um if you look at some of the letters to the editor in in the republic or some other papers um there was actually a, a kind of a situation uh fairly recently um with some attacks Uh, on some of the judges in the Superior Court related to the whole election audit thing that um, it might have been helpful if the court's public information officer for the Superior Court had made a general statement on this is how things um, get assigned, um, you know, that there isn't any, you know, backdoor corruption here. Um, Although I will say, you know, you're certainly not going to satisfy every conspiracy theory crackpot out there. So you know, even if you issue the statement, there's still going to be people out there disinformationing it. So,
5: I'll risk a question, I guess, on a a, a different rule that was changed recently. Okay. H- historic historically, the the commission has not really acted as a an appellate court. Um, I fact, I think the the pamphlets that you distribute to people say we're not an appellate court. You know. If, if you don't like a judge's decision, you should appeal it. You should not necessarily file a, a commission complaint. There used to be a rule um, that said the commission shall not take action against the judge for making erroneous findings of fact of, of, or conclusions of law in the absence of fraud, corrupt motive, bad faith on the judge's part, unless such findings um, are such an abuse of discretion that they would warrant disciplinary action. That rule was, was removed um, in a rule change petition, um, I think at your request. And I was just kind of curious what, what the background on that was and why that rule went away.
0: I think
5: it was caught up in the time where there was uh, a judge in California that made a really bad ruling about a swimmer uh, right. on the swim team um who had uh, either sexually assaulted or raped somebody and was sentenced to nothing and the the judge was subsequently I think either voted out or removed from office so it was it was during that that time frame
2: um. Right. I think that got tied into um, a request that we had made, honestly, to change our rule regarding press releases Is somewhat as a response to that. For, for those who may not be aware, there was the um, swimmer from Stanford University who um, was alleged to have had uh, sex with an unconscious female. Um, and when he was charged and later sentenced, I believe he, it was a very minimal um, sentence um, very minimal amount of time in jail and then probation. And it was quite the uproar. Um, I believe you are correct that the judge was later um, voted out of office um, or recalled. Um, I do know that the California Commission received something like uh, close. It was well over 6000 closer to 7000 complaints regarding that judge's decision. And they ended up issuing um, a fairly detailed dismissal order basically explaining that, uh, you know, the judge's decision in that case was within the parameters of what the law permitted for that offense. So it was not an illegal sentence. Um, It was just more that people thought it was too lenient of a sentence and it wasn't the commission's role to uh, determine whether or not that was Uh, too lenient of a sentence and it went through sort of what the Commission's role was regarding judges' rulings. Um, So part of the reason why I believe that Rule 7 um, ended up being, uh, or we ended up requesting that that sort of be abrogated was It did say that the commission shall not take action against the judge for making erroneous findings of fact or conclusions of law in the absence of fraud, corrupt motive or bad faith on the judge's part um, unless findings or conclusions constituted an abuse of discretion or otherwise violate one of the grounds of discipline described in the code. That was a holdover from the prior version um, of the code under the current version of the code that was adopted back in 2009 uh, comment three to rule 2.2 uh, now states that a good faith error, a good faith error of fact or law, does not violate the code. Um, however, a pattern of legal error or an intentional disregard of the law may constitute misconduct. So that's sort of where uh, most of, most of the decision where people are attacking decisions that the commission will you know, simply say that, you know, we don't have clear and convincing evidence to find that it was either a pattern or an intentional disregard of the law. So, um, and if you've ever looked um, on the commission's website, it's kind of, you know, maybe, you know, if you don't have anything better to do, uh, scroll through some of like the dismissed cases. It'll give you a flavor of the types of uh, complaints that we receive, and you know, there's a lot of cris- criticism that the commission doesn't do enough. Um, but when you look at a lot of the complaints that received at, at their core, they are disagreements with some with the judge's legal ruling. They might be couched in terms of bias, um, or a few other things, but really at their core, they're a disagreement with the legal ruling. And you know, we tell people that we're not an appellate court, we can't change things. Um, but so many people in their complaints are asking you, you know, change the ruling, give me my kid back, you know, set aside this conviction or whatever the case may be. Um, but I believe that the thinking behind changing that particular rule was because it was now, uh, incorporated into the code itself where it had not previously been. Hopefully that answers your question, Judge Williams. I don't remember. Did you? Did you comment on that at the time i can't remember i can't recall no i was in
5: and i was lost in the eviction land um I, I, <laughs> I, I would have commented on the time had i noticed it had been filed um but um no i was we were some of us have been in this eviction haze for about 18 months where we're, we're just now coming out of that
2: well and you may be going back so <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that wave will kick in at some point, I don't know. Um, one I, of the I, things that, oh, Go ahead, whoever had the question.
1: No, you, you continue.
2: I would say One of the things um, that we've uh, talked about a little bit with the Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee, and I've talked to Paul Julian a little bit about too, was in light of the upcoming election, We would like to actually, um, a few years ago, uh, Margaret, my predecessor, had put together a brochure that she had put on the CJC's website and also distributed to uh, the county recorders. It was basically guidelines um, for candidates seeking judicial office to simply clue them in that there was a code that would apply to them um, and to give them some information um, about that Uh, because so many people I think seek office maybe not necessarily understanding that there are rules and regulations that are going to govern you um, if you are elected and then will retroactively apply to what you did during your campaign Um, so there was some discussion that maybe a brochure isn't necessarily enough in this day and age that people may need something more interactive Um, or more visual so um, I've talked to Paul Julian about using uh, Ed Services to put together a video for judicial candidates that kind of highlights some of the typical mistakes that first-time judicial candidates often make um, you know not having the appropriate sign advertising uh, endorsements from law enforcement um, things of that nature um, and put that out there as well in hopes of uh maybe eliminating or alleviating some of the um problems that you see with judicial candidates because i I know that it is frustrating uh to the sitting judges to say you know we're hamstrung by the code but my opponent isn't and the damage is already done by the time you acquire jurisdiction over them so we do recognize that um and for those of you who don't know my own personal background uh before I came to the commission, um, I was in Pinal County. I, I did a variety of things. I was in private practice for a period of time. I was with the public defender's office for a period of time. And uh, I was a Justice of the peace pro tem for about three years and a superior court judge for two years. I actually lost my election. So I have been through a contested election. I've walked a mile in your shoes. So I, I do understand where you're coming from sometimes in, in those election matters. Um, so, just kind of wanted to throw that out there because I know next year might be an election year for many of you. Um, so we are looking at trying to provide some more education um, to the candidates that they are required to comply with the code.
0: Hi, this is um, Michelle Reagan. So I I, I want to say, first of all, um, I think your idea that you and Paul Julian are working on, is a great idea I encourage you to actually um, get something into the county recorders. My only comment would be um, next year it's kind of too late and what I mean I'm saying you know better late than never I suppose but the sooner you could get that information out there um, because as you know from running for office before um these elections have already started and um, so you know I may or may not have a, a person that, um, has filed a run for McDowell Mountain and just on getting on his Facebook page and looking at some of the things that he wrote, I'm like, dear gosh, are you kidding me? And I think it's because he just doesn't know, you know, there's just, mm-hmm. you just, I mean, yeah, he can do it now, but should he um, prevail? I mean, all that stuff is out there and that's just, I think, bad for the judiciary as a whole. So the quicker you could get that guidance to the county recorders, even if it's a flyer that they hand out from the front counter in the packet when people are possibly um, filing for these positions, it, I think it would help the whole system.
2: Right. They they do already have the flyer, um, but it's it's some it's one of those things where we send it to the recorders. Um, you know, they say they will hand it out. We like to believe that they do. We can't always necessarily make people read them, you know. So um, that's why we were hoping maybe an, an added video might might help, because so many, you know, people now are are more visual than than reading something um, and working on that. But uh, we do definitely, you know, think some education is out there. Um, but I think you also sometimes run into, at least a lot of times, what I have seen from people's responses is a lot of people who think it's easier to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission.
4: Well, if I could just offer something else as well as just further into the conversation, just a, an observation, and that is, well, I think also there is value in getting it out to the county recorder's office. They can send out the flyers and whatnot. As we all well know, with what Judge Reagan said, the elections were already underway, unless somebody actually takes the initiative to ask for the county recorder to send them a packet i'm not sure there's going to be anything for the county recorder's office to disperse to anybody and so it may be until that happens and that really doesn't have to happen until you reach a certain expenditure level it could be march april of next year before somebody finally asks for a packet from the recorder so they could put it on their website. They could have a flyer that's an image that's on their website. It could be on the um, uh, commission's website. Mm-hmm. It, it's all valuable in case somebody happens to go there and sees it. But, but unfortunately, as far as proactively getting it out to anybody who's running an election, there could be folks out there right now campaigning, and we don't even know about it. So,
2: that's that's true.
0: Is it permissible to, um, if if you know people at the county recorder's office, to ask them if they would consider putting something on their website under the candidate section? I mean, they've they've got a separate little candidate section for precinct committeemen. Why
2: can't one be like, hey, if you're running for judge, click here? I think that's permissible if they're willing to do it. and I certainly don't have a problem in asking them in a non you know in just a general
0: you know general request not specifically for about any campaign
2: yeah no I mean because it's not specific to a particular candidate um, and it would just be like you know if you're thinking of running for judge here's a video to watch that has some considerations you know for things you may not have thought of because it's not only I think it would also be useful because it's not only for judges seeking elected office, but also for judges seeking appointed office because they also have to comply with the code during their application period as well. Um, but it's not only the political aspects that bind them, but you know, just a general thing if you could if you could put it out there, um, you know, and I don't know how one would do like a mass marketing campaign, but you know, things to consider before you become a judge, you know, do you want the political restrictions on your speech? Do you want the restrictions on your financial activities? You know, I think that's your first analysis is, you know, is this job right for me knowing what the restrictions are? And then two, if you decide that, okay, what are the specific individual restrictions and how do I, you know, act accordingly? Um, I think so many people jump in and it's, you know, one of those things where they don't realize it. I, I know we've seen this um, a couple of times with judges who were appointed initially to a position and then had to run, you know, their comments were like, oh, when I applied for this, I didn't know there were all these restrictions. You know, I don't know how you reach every single, you know, person like that. I mean, we honestly don't have sort of like the PR or the manpower to reach out to, you know, every time there's a vacancy somewhere around the state or, um, you know, to go, I mean, and I don't know that it would necessarily be proper for the commission to distribute the video to political parties to say share it with anybody that you know that might be running for office. I, I don't know that that's really proper for us to do, but certainly if you know someone wanted to share it, they could. because I think that's where you're first really gonna reach people. are these are the people that started showing up at party meetings and you know to make the connections in order to run. But I don't know that it's proper for us to reach out to the parties and say, show your potential candidates this video.
3: If I can, uh, in today's paper, uh, there was some information about the appointment process with the Board of Supervisors, and they're the ones who replace us. Um it may be something to put on your to do agenda, Judge Huberman, when you're in the conversation with the Chairman, just to let him know that election has a flyer right now that they may want to make available to people who apply to become JPs through the appointment process. I appreciate what you were sh- saying, April. A lot of us think about elections. we may not think about appointments. That's good.
1: All right, and uh, do we have any questions for uh, Ms. Elliott or Mr. Deborah. All right, and and uh, Ms. Elliott, I'd also ask you to if if you wanted to talk about any um, trends that you see or, or information that that you wanted our judges to know.
2: Um. Well, some of the perennial judicial ethics issue demeanor comes up all the time. Um, So just sort of a reminder uh, that that's, you know, probably the biggest area of complaints that we see. And sort of a helpful tip that I like to give, uh, and I think others like to give too, is just occasionally um, go pull a recording, or, you know, if if it's an audio and video recording, just randomly pull it and and watch yourself um, because you may not have a realization of how you're coming across. Um, in so many of the cases where we've had a judge that maybe has lost his or her temper with a litigant, what we see very frequently in that judge's response is until i went back and i watched the video i had no idea that i came across that way i thought i was coming across x and had no idea i was coming across as y um so i would say just you know helpful little tip pull videos um just randomly you know couple two or three times a year to see how you're coming across Uh, we do recognize that uh people are very trying these days um a lot of people on edge with everything that's going on in the world judges included um, so just try to you know uh, keep your decorum about you the other trend that i would say that we're noticing um statewide is honestly an uptick in complaints from court employees about a variety of things um that i would say uh, many things can fall under the category of a lack of professional boundaries. Um, It can include uh, that the judge is verbally abusive uh, towards their staff. Um, It can also include allegations that the judge is derelict in his or her duties in running the court. Um, So we are seeing um, a lot of uptick in complaints from, from court employees, a lot of court employees who. You know, I, I still say there's probably a lot of court employees that are intimidated to come forward and file a complaint, but we are seeing more that are willing to come forward and bring it to the commission's attention that there's uh, problems in various courts. So maintain those professional boundaries with your staff. Um, hopefully, be nice to your staff, and they should be nice to you. So um, but those are some of the upticks that that we're seeing.
0: I have a question, April. It was specific to the first comment about decorum, uh, but now for both, is uh, are your comments uh, general comments or are they
2: more specific to
0: JPs?
2: Honestly, I would say they are are general comments because it's not. Um, I think we do see more of this um, in in the justice courts um to some extent the city courts but city court judges are a little bit different because if there's an issue with a city court judge typically if they're being verbally abusive to the staff or they're engaging in sexual harassment most of the city court judges um, i think there's one elected city court judge statewide but the rest are all appointed and they serve at the pleasure of a city council or a city manager so the Typically like HR departments can act in those situations and then make a recommendation to the city manager who may go to the city council and say, we need to terminate this judge's contract for cause. Sometimes those don't ever make their way to us um, because they've been handled in that respect. The when they make their way to us is typically when the official is elected. So that's gonna be a JP, superior court, Um, And probably we see more of these at the justice of the peace level because the JP is over that particular individual staff at a superior court level. There might only be like one or two particular employees under a superior court judge and the rest are all court administration. Um, So we do see, I think, more of these in justice of the peace situations. Uh, occasionally, we see them in in, in bigger counties, um, even when there's a large court administration there to assist in the overall management um, operations of the court. But we do see quite a bit of it in the smaller rural courts, um, you know, where they might be out on their own um, and uh, sort of that judge is king or queen of their domain, um, and you know, problematic in that respect. But we do see some issues with superior court judges um, failing to um, maintain some uh, professional boundaries. We had a a superior court judge. the The case was actually dismissed with a warning. So I, I can't disclose the um, the judge's name. But some of the allegations were that um, the bailiff. Um, during court proceedings, would essentially be creating like little memes or uh, otherwise, you know, snarky little emails like that, and would be emailing the judge and other court staff during court proceedings, making fun of a defendant, um, witnesses, jurors, attorneys, um, <laughs> and, and and this bailiff actually sort of had like this kind of spot-on ability to see somebody and immediately come up with a, a, you know, a meme to send out regarding this. Um, And and the judge, for the most part, would kind of ignore that, but from time to time would comment on those and respond back. Um, There was never any evidence the judge initiated any of these. Um, But, you know, it's, it's problematic because, you know, all that was going over on email, which is public record. Um, and then, you know, it, it came to light from a complaint from a court employee about it. Um, and so we do see it at the superior court level, um, as well. Again, it was just, it was, and and, and it was one of those things where I said, you know, back when I served on the bench 15 years ago, you know, they didn't have the memes and stuff like that. Um, you know, from, I mean, we are all human. Um, and from time to time, you know, we'd pass notes with my clerk or somebody like that, where you might make a snarky comment about somebody that was appearing in your court. Um, and I thought, well, you know, thank God for those days, you know, because the post-it note got ripped up and put in the trash. However, interestingly, um, so I had kind of said that about the superior court judge that had, she just stuck with, you know, post-it notes and not sending emails where there was a record. Um, (laughs) didn't excuse the conduct, but might not have gotten her in trouble with the commission. But interestingly, I came across doing some other research, something I didn't find when her case was pending, um, an old case from about 20 years ago from another jurisdiction in which the judge and his staff were doing the same thing, the passing post-it notes, making snarky little comments about people appearing in their court, and as it turns out, the court reporter was fishing those post-it notes out of the trash and keeping them, and then eventually went and made a <laughs> um, a complaint to that particular state's judicial conduct commission, who um, publicly um, disciplined that particular judge. So, you know, I'm like, well, the post-it notes wouldn't have saved somebody, you know, either. Um, and what we often see in these situations with court staff is there's a member of the commission that likes to say everything was fine until it wasn't. You know, it was like this particular employee might have been going along with it, might have been participating in whatever the issue was, is, and then suddenly something happens and that person is like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm out and I'm taking you down with me. Um, so, you know, that's sort of uh, a lot of these do start somewhat with a disgruntled employee for some reason. So, but, you know, so just you know, I would say the post-it notes don't save you anymore either because, you know, somebody might be fishing them out of the trash and keeping track of them. Um, and I get it, you know, like I said, you know, you might have, you know, a lawyer that drives you up a wall um, and you get off the bench and you vent to your staff about it. Um, like I said, we're all human and we'd like to believe that, uh, you know, that kind of stuff can, um, you know, that you can do that but once in a while you, you know if if you've crossed the line there you know you might get an employee that's going to report you for it so and i would say when the superior court judge it was it was prolific it was almost every court date i mean there were just volumes and volumes of the emails from between the bailiff and the clerk and the judge and um it, it was just you you wondered how the judge managed to actually conduct a calendar so
1: well the, the interesting thing about that story is you did have a judge reading their emails um just does, the, <laughs> does the, yeah just does, does would the commission agree that reading your business email is an important function of a judge's job
2: absolutely um i i think a, a judge recently got a, a comment regarding that that uh, especially um, with the pandemic and everything you know, moving remotely and so much um, important information being distributed via email. I think it's very important that you get judges that check their uh, work or professional email frequently. And I would say at least once a day.
1: And um, does every complaint require, uh, does the commission ask for a response to every complaint?
2: No, we do not. So just a um, little kind of insight into how this works is, so we get somewhere between 350 425 complaints a year. That's sort of our average over the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. The vast majority of those are resolved without needing a response from the judge. And so it, it's a situation where if we take a look at something and we can resolve it without a response from the judge, we typically make a recommendation to the commission. It's usually the ones that are recommended to be dismissed. So these are situations where somebody, you know, might be a, a flat out disagreement with a ruling. It might be the judge was rude to me and we got the recording and we listened to it and judge was not rude. More often than not, it turns out the litigant was rude. Um, so a lot of those are dismissed. And just simply because we ask for a response from somebody um, in certain cases doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to result in discipline. It, a lot of times it just simply means we need more information than what we're able to get from, from the complainant, from court records, or from a recording. Um, and we're not allowed to we need to have our own record, I guess, at, at how things happen. So, sort of like between my experience, Michael's experience, a lot of times we can assume that, you know, X happened and this is Y. Um, but that doesn't, you know, our assumption isn't part of the commission's record. So sometimes we need the judge to say yes x in fact did happen um and and, you know that is something that the commission can then you know take into consideration or you know hang their hat on um you know for example it might be uh you know the the judge is married to somebody that's in the public defender's office and uh she never said anything about that on the record um You know, it might be something where I personally know the judge. It might have been somebody I appeared in front of um, when I practiced as a lawyer, and I might be able to say, I know what this judge's custom and practice was, that she did make this advisement, but I can't specifically avow to you that it happened in this case. So we might seek a response from the judge in that situation to say, did you make the advisement? Did the defendant waive it? Any conflict? Um, So, sort of something like that where we can't make that assumption on behalf of a judge. We can't make that leap, that if we can't find it on the record ourselves, we will have to ask the judge to respond and um, say, yes, this in fact happened, or or didn't happen, and and then act accordingly. Um, I would say we have probably, of like, you know, 350 to 400 complaints, we might be seeking responses in somewhere between seventy to ninety of those um, and uh you know if you have questions about the response or you know we can't tell you exactly what to include, but we may be able to give you some guidance on what the commission you know might be looking for or to help help narrow things, we do send out a response suggestion sheet, and one of the big things that I would always say is. We do tell you in the response suggestion sheet not to attack the particular complainant, um, and I will say that you know if this particular complainant is a problem problem litigant, may have mental health issues, may be difficult, uh, vexatious, we're going to figure that out <laughs> without you telling us. Um, it, the The example that I can give, and it wasn't from anybody on this bench, was. Uh, we had a litigant who clearly, or um, complainant that had clearly some mental health issues, filed a complaint against the judge. And we did want the judge to respond to certain portions, you know, of the complainant's thing. We send it out to him with the thing, you know, don't make personal attacks on the complainant. The judge submits a seven-page response. Three full pages of that are devoted to talking about how crazy the complainant is. We already know that, you know, we can usually figure that out because um, chances are if these are people who have filed something every day in your court they're emailing or calling our office every day too so um, those are things that we can typically figure out and it, it, it just doesn't sit well with members of the Commission when you know a judge is sort of like complainant bashing um, they, they feel like it takes away something from the judge's response so okay. Do you mind if I ask you I more question? clarification
0: about? again? Is that are you still st- speaking in general terms for all judges, or again are the 300 to 400 complaints just for JPs? I, I want more clarification. Oh, no, no,
2: the the 350 to 425 is total for all judges, um, and the you know 70 to 90 you know cases a year that we seek responses from that that ranges. That can be JPs. That can be Superior Court—that uh, can be appellate court judges as well. So we don't—I would say—we don't get a huge amount of complaints against appellate court judges, um, primarily because most litigants don't have the day-to-day interaction with them like they do at a trial level. Um, so the majority of the complaints that we do see about the appellate court judges are typically disagreements with with the rulings. Um, but from time to time, we do get people that make complaints about conflicts of interest that an appellate court judge might have, um, you know, uh, things of that nature. But no, it's the statistics are total, not just for for JPs. So do you mind if I ask
4: a question about something you just touched on about the complaint <laughs> maturation process under a particular scenario? Yeah. And and it's just this. Um, We all want the record running for a number of reasons. It's multifaceted in value. Um, But unfortunately, what I found, at least in my court, from all too often, is the system that we use is a technological piece of junk. And by that, I mean a case might go up on appeal to superior court, and due to insufficiency of the record, the audio or video, even though the bench clock shows it's running, turns out nothing was being recorded, and it's got to come back for a new trial. But that can also become an issue for a complaint that is filed against a judicial officer. And I know you touched on it a bit. Somebody files a complaint against a judge, he or she really berated me, used foul language, whatever scenario we want to come up with. So you need to look at the complaint. You might reach out to the court, ask for a copy of a recording for the proceeding. The court manager responds, "Uh, we looked, Um, it doesn't show that it was running assume that it really was running, but you only get audio, you only get video, or you get nothing. In a scenario like that, I mean, it does concern me. Um, How would the commission perhaps then address this if it appears, uh, I guess you'd have to trust that the record really was turned on unless maybe our technology shows it was turned on, but it just isn't producing audio or video. How might that complaint process mature when you perhaps don't have an actual audio video to, re- to to review, and how might that impact the judge?
2: So so that happens probably more often than than what you think. Um, uh, FTR is not well loved statewide. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, I will say that uh, you know many courts are, are now moving to Liberty. I don't know that that's the end all be all, but um, many people seem to love it better than FTR. Uh, but Unless we have information that a judge is not recording proceedings deliberately, um, and there have been a few of those, and, and, and there has been, you know, obviously then there's been other information, to, you know, with interviews with court employees or with lawyers, um, and they're like, you know, the judge just doesn't turn it on, um, and in one situation we we had the judge admit that he didn't turn it on. Uh, so, you know, unless we have you know, information that it's not being turned on deliberately, um, then I think for the most part, um, well, I guess I'd say if, if we have information that it malfunctioned or, you know, whatever, there is no recording available, there's only a partial recording available, then it's, we're probably going to seek a response from the judge to ask for his or her side of the story. Um, If necessary, we may interview anybody else who might have been in the courtroom um, to see what they recall, that can be lawyers, um, uh, court clerks, Um, and then it goes to the commission to determine, it's a clear and convincing standard, Um, and I would say, based on my experience with the cases we've had where there's been a malfunctioning recording, the commission is basically finding that there isn't clear and convincing evidence. I mean, unless somebody else in the courtroom is corroborating what the complainant is saying, the court, the commission will find that there's not clear and convincing evidence of improper demeanor. Um, this actually it came up. <clears throat> we get these sometimes the complaints about improper demeanor in either settlement conferences or media, or like family law mediations at the superior court level, which are typically not recorded. Um, so those are ones where we may be a, talking to other people who are involved, lawyers, uh, other parties um, who might be there. There might be a court clerk in there, but the recording wasn't turned on, so you might be talking to them. Um, and unless, like I said, somebody else is corroborating um, what the complainant says, it, then it's a little bit, you know, more difficult for the commission to make their clear and convincing. Um, finding so, I would say for the most part the 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 judge is getting the benefit of the doubt Thank in those you. types of situations. And a lot of those, um, you may note that on a lot of the dismissal orders, the commission has sort of a, a stock or standard dismissal order that they entered, um, which is kind of very vague. Um, there have been discussions over the years about whether or not to do custom orders um, and. Mainly, the reason why custom orders are not done in all the dismissal cases is, is a manpower situation. We, we just don't have the staff to customize all the orders. Um, but the, the other thing is, people are going to complain whether it's vague or whether it's specific. If you put in more specifics, then they're going to complain that you didn't look at, you know, oh, your order said you looked at this, but I told you to look at X. You know, so people are going to complain no matter what. So the commission generally issues um, fairly standard orders. From time to time, they will deviate in those situations where they might specifically note that a recording was not available for the Commission's review. And that's more just to, you know, it wasn't telling the litigant that we're disbelieving you. It's simply that there wasn't a recording for us to view, and based on the information that we did have, we can't find clear and convincing evidence.
0: April, if I can ask a question, and you may sure. have covered because I've been in and out. Um, Does the commission self-generate complaints itself? I mean, start an investigation. Maybe you're driving down the street, it's campaign season, and you see a law enforcement or sheriff endorsement on a Justice of the Peace sign, or the Justice of the Peace sign doesn't say four on it. Um, Or there might be something that just comes to your attention due to a media story. Does the Commission just wait for a complaint to come their way, or do you open a complaint because you have seen something that you think rises to the attention and could be in fact a violation?
2: The Commission does have authority under Commission Rule 20 to initiate a complaint. Um, and, and typically, there are two ways that that can come about. One is if uh, it's you know something that happens in the media um, might be generated, like a story of a judge being arrested, or you know something along those lines. Uh, the commission may you know choose to, and the commission chair has to authorize that. Staff can't, um, so the commission chair can basically say, "I authorize an investigation into X." The other way it can come about is if the commission is investigating a complaint regarding um let's say you know uh improper demeanor and something else crops up during the course of that investigation then there's a little more latitude to potentially you know investigate um you know it's it's, it's sort of one of those things like you know if the cops go to A house to serve a search warrant looking for illegal drugs but they find a dead body they're not just going to ignore the dead body because it wasn't drugs Um, you know so if we're looking at a complaint that um, you know the you know for for, you know the the judge didn't afford somebody an opportunity to be heard um, and in the course of reviewing records or something discovered you know the judge didn't make a ruling for a year regarding something you know then it'll be something where you know we will um you know ask for authorization for that to be investigated and uh you know have the judge respond to you know that particular aspect of it but for the for the most part like i said most of the it, we don't like we don't troll um so if i'm driving down the street and i see you know an improper sign I'm, I'm not taking a picture of it and coming back here and and asking judge dominguez to open an investigation but a lot of these crop up in some you know context of somebody might have filed a complaint against you know so and so for x and it might have been okay we went to their facebook page and we were looking and well, okay not only did x happen but Y z is on there, and that's problematic too, so we might ask them to respond, but it's not a situation typically where um uh, you know it, it, unless you know unless we see something really really egregious, but you know a lot of those you know pretty much every election there's gonna be errors on people's signs you know it it happens, and it it's kind of like we do from time to time get complaints and some and a judge might respond and say i'm not the only judge who does that i don't doubt that but it's kind of like what i you know like i don't have complaints against other judges for this conduct right now i have a complaint against you so i will be investigating or you know we will be investigating this particular complaint if you want to file if you think you're being unfairly judged for just copying what other judges do you're welcome to file a complaint against those other judges and we'll investigate those but um you know we don't typically troll for stuff so we have enough work as it is
1: (laughs) I, i was Surprised to hear how many requests you get at, at the Judicial Ethics Advisory Board, because there are not very many formal opinions. So do you only do the formal opinions when somebody specifically requests a formal opinion? or, or how, how does that work?
2: So for the most part, um, a lot of the times people are just asking for informal in advice. Um, so um, to give an example of something like that, you might get a a judicial law clerk that just started and said, uh, I just started clerking for one of the Supreme Court justices. Um, Post-employment, I'm gonna go to work for X firm and this firm has a lot of cases pending before the court. Uh, Can I have my future firm pay my bar dues? You know, something like that, I, I I will typically answer informally because there's already written ethics opinions on that that say, know a law clerk in that situation cannot have their future firm pay their bar dues while they are clerking um but you know we do ask that if you want a formal written opinion from the committee that you put the request in writing um and then that goes to the committee itself to determine whether or not a formal opinion will be issued Um, and and just because you've requested one doesn't mean the committee is going to grant it and do it Um, a lot of times they will say No, we're not going to grant a formal opinion, a formal written opinion in this, we're going to direct that you give informal advice. So a a lot of the requests for, you know, informal advice um, are things like, can I go to X fundraiser? Um, Can I attend this March? Um, Can I write a letter of recommendation for somebody? And if so, can I put it on my letterhead? Those are a, a lot of the the questions that we get. A um, lot of questions from new judges um, regarding disqualification issues um, involving their former employers or attorneys that they're friends with. Um, those are a lot of the informal ones because there's kind of a, opinions on a lot of that already. Um, I do think we probably that the commit that the committee. Might want to consider issuing more formal opinions. Um, it is something <clears throat> I would like to look at. Um, my first four months on the job, I actually did both the current job and Michael's job while we were looking for a candidate and waiting for him to start. Um, so, you know, it's kind of one of those like uh, triage type things. So now that I have a little bit more time. Um certainly would you know would like to to look into maybe issuing some more opinions if that's where the committee is so inclined. but I'm one member of that, so um, it takes the the full committee to make that determination.
1: And, and would the committee self generate formal opinions or you still need someone to request it formally in, in writing?
2: I would think that they would generate based on um, multiple requests, um, for example, we get a lot of requests from soon to be retiring judges. Uh, I want to, I'm leaving the bench, I want to go to work for, you know, county attorney's office now. Um, at what point in time do I have to start disclosing that on the record in my criminal cases? Um, so we see like a lot of requests in, in, informally in that respect. Um, and uh, there's not really like a good written opinion from Arizona on that so that is something that I think that we could probably put together just based on the fact that there have been a number of informal requests regarding that there's enough of an interest to generate a formal opinion Uh, otherwise it is typically something that it's uh, an inquirer has asked for a formal opinion and then the committee uh, does generate it um, It can be written by me. It can be written by one of the members of the committee and the draft circulated. And then once uh, the draft is final within members of the committee, um, then it goes out for a comment period uh, statewide to all the judges uh, to comment on uh, the committee's uh, proposed recommendations and to see if anybody has any feedback. Um, And then the committee would review any feedback in that regards and may make amendments before the opinion is finalized and posted.
3: All right, thank you. Um,
1: Do do we have any other concluding thoughts or uh, any other concluding questions? Um, I I know we talked about statements, but uh, does either Ms. Elliott or Mr. Devereaux want to speak about
2: social media? Just general advice there? Um, Social media. Ethical minefield, um, I think, is the term Margaret employed, and I, I would adopt that We have actually um, sort of a presentation uh, on social media that certainly would be happy to, you know, give and it's probably not a bad idea to do a refresher on that periodically. There is actually a formal ethics opinion from 2014, um, and that opinion, it's 1401, it talks primarily about LinkedIn, Facebook, and blogs, Um, but you can kind of take the reasoning from that and apply it to any of the other newer platforms that have come into existence over the last seven years, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram. Uh, It's just use caution when posting. Um, We recognize that a lot of judges, particularly campaign related, need a social media presence. Um, It's expected. And, you know, just use caution about what you post. Um, And uh, also to remember that, um, you know, if somebody comments on your uh, posting, um, that, you know, it's a comment you wouldn't make or it's otherwise offensive, you need to take proactive, you know, action and delete it um, or otherwise remove it. Uh, because you know that if you leave it up it then it becomes um, then the inferences that you've adopted it and or endorsed it by leaving it up there even though you may not have posted it um, and you know likes retweets shares are going to be viewed as if they had come from you um, so some you know helpful tips going into the election as a reminder you know Judges or judicial candidates cannot publicly endorse um, another candidate for public office. So you will or, or oppose another candidate for office. So if you're going to like an elected official's Facebook page, um, you know that can be perceived as a, as a as a public endorsement. Um, so kind of be caution about that. But the opinion. Uh, breaks it down and uh, if you'd like me to, you know, come back and do a refresher on um, social media and political activity, I'm 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 happy to do that either at a, at a round table or at one of your trainings. So happy to do that. Thank
1: you. And I did uh, share my screen to show on our YouTube channel uh, director, former director Downey's April presentation on ethics and social media has one hundred and twenty seven views, which uh, makes it our most popular uh, and certainly we will almost certainly have you next year to
2: update that. sure so, and 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 Margaret, <clears throat> I apologize for my voice. Margaret was great at that. so um and it a lot of these things apply for for judges and judicial employees alike. so um, you know always helpful to 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 watch so. All right, any, any last uh, questions? Any
1: concluding thoughts from our guests?
2: My only concluding thought would be just maybe to kind of follow up a little bit on um, Judge Saul's questions is we get 350 to you know, 425 complaints a year. And when you think about the 1000s of people that come through the court system in Arizona, every day, all throughout the year, there, there are thousands that have interactions for, you know, traffic tickets, uh, criminal charges, family law matters, civil matters, um, that only 350 to 425 people um, file complaints. is it, pretty remarkable. It, I think it says that for the most part, the judges in the state are doing things right. And, and I know that some judges may feel like they get picked on, um, or things of that nature. And from time to time, it's it's you know interesting that, um, you know, a couple months ago, I got an ethics inquiry from someone and I was like, who is this person? Never heard of them. And looked this person up and discovered they'd been a judge for you know, about seven or eight years and we never received a single complaint about this person. Um, so it's kind of one of those things. Like there are judges out there, I, I I don't even know who they are, where they serve, because we we don't ever hear about them. Um, and then there are others, you know, unfortunately that come through here, you know, quite a bit. Um, if you're a superior court judge and you have a criminal or a family law rotation, I would say we're bound to hear, you know, get a complaint about you because those are the two areas most likely to uh, garner a judicial conduct complaint also the two areas most likely to garner an attorney a bar complaint um just because people are generally unhappy um and and they take it out but i would say you know you the judicial officers in the state when when i look at what i see happening in other jurisdictions around the country you guys are doing a remarkable job and keep it up so that's what i would try to end on a positive note that um Overall, when you consider the number of people that come into interaction every day, the court systems, not that many actually end up filing a complaint with us. So you guys are doing a lot right, and keep that up.
0: Well, April, I may have to spoil that because yesterday my litigant got upset with me. He wanted to know why I wouldn't allow him to do defensive driving school when he was going
2: 132 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. So... You know, we, we get a lot of people that do want to make a, you know, a federal case out of a speeding ticket, you know, they're, they're going to take it all the way up to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court's going to hear about it. And I'm like, Yeah, you go for that. You try that. And, you know, see, and so many of our complaints are people like, and if you don't do something about it, I'm going to the media, like, okay, go to the media, I, I you know. um for the number of people who make that claim, I very rarely ever see stories about this. So, um, I will say there was there was was kind of going back to the whole comment thing um, on judges being able to comment something. It it just dawned on me a few years ago, the media gave quite a bit of attention. I thought a bit unfairly um, to a gentleman who was upset. He was trying to get, it was an older gentleman trying to get guardianship or conservatorship over his wife. Um, and because he needed to, um, he needed to basically be able to um, have authority to do some financial transactions, uh, the legal authority to do that. Um, I think some of the money might have been her separate property or something along those lines. Under the guardianship law and the conservatorship law, the court is required to appoint an attorney to represent the proposed ward. Uh, they're required to have a physician's report talking about their the ward's condition. They're also required to appoint a court visitor, an independent person to go and conduct an investigation. So the judge did all of those things. Um, and unfortunately, the cost of that can be shifted to the person who um, has made the request for the guardianship or conservatorship. And, you know, right, wrong, or otherwise, that's where things currently stand under the law. And he was upset about how much money the lawyer that was appointed for his wife was charging um, and that he didn't think you know that she needed to have to go see a doctor and pay for the lawyer and so there was a reporter who clearly had not done any legal research but wrote like this you know story and it got some airtime on the news um you know as you know this is just the, the the system trying to deplete money from these people who have no money um and that's something i think where it would have been really helpful had a court spokesperson responded to that to say the ju- you know or the judge you know probably couldn't comment because the matter was still pending but to have somebody else comment to say look the statute requires x y and z it's not that the judge was trying to deplete this woman's finances unfairly this is what the statute required and the judge has complied with the statute um so sometimes I think the media does put an unfair spin on it. And so that might be a situation where um, it would be helpful, you know, for a court spokesman, maybe not the judge to just to, to respond and address the mechanics, because there was, uh, I saw as that story gained some traction on various things, like people on like the different like news sites would, you know, you would see like lawyers commenting, like the judge did what was required, there's nothing wrong here. Um, But the media isn't focusing on that, so that is something that I think the comments, um, hopefully the permissible comments, you know, may, the courts may feel more comfortable to address. Although, you know, in a situation like that, um, you know, it's still a question of, you know, should you comment on it? You know, would commenting on it make it look like, you know, the court's mean trying to take her money? I don't know, I think it just would have been helpful had there been some sort of official statement to that saying the judge did exactly what the law required. And if you don't like the law, go see the legislature.
4: Judge Adornado, may I? Just one comment, and I know for April Elliott, um, this won't be the first time you've heard this. I just feel particularly motivated with you here to offer an observation, and so here goes and it pertains to rule four, and that is the independence of the judiciary is very important in court. And that's where that preservation of the independence of the judiciary needs to be recognized and needs to be maintained at all costs. Fact of the matter is, as we all know, in 13, no, I take it 12 of 15 counties in Arizona, Superior court judges are directly elected. They are not appointed and stand for retention. All 91 justices of the peace in Arizona are directly elected. They run for office. Uh, Statutes and the rules allow for these judicial officers and candidates to run uh, in partisan races. They identify with certain parties. They're allowed to engage in typical campaign activities Respectfully, then I think it's frankly absurd that the canons are written in such a way that we, for example, if we're motivated to do so, can ask for folks to carry our nominating petitions, a traditional campaign activity, but we can't reciprocate and carry theirs. We can ask for endorsements if we want to, but we can't endorse, and yet we're recognized as elected officials. I don't think the independence of the judiciary is in any way compromised if it's a bifurcated approach where the independence is simply recognized in court proceedings and judicial officers do what they have to do when there is a basis, a reason for them to recuse themselves. They have the endorsement in a campaign from somebody that's going to appear in front of them. Of course, you recuse yourself from hearing that case. You do what's right. But I just, It's never sat well with me, it's my little mini editorial comment, it's never sat well with me that we can be elected officials, recognized as candidates for elected office, it's expected we engage in traditional elect campaign activities, and yet it's a one-way street, we can ask for help, just don't bother asking us for it because we can't give it back if we want to, it makes no sense.
2: Thanks. I, I hear you. And and I will say when I do, because uh, I've done this now, for like three or four times within the last few months, I've done the presentation for social media and political activity. And so when you go through some of the scenarios with people about what a judge can or cannot do, um, you know, you do, you know, like a couple, like, you know, can you do this endorsement? Or, you know, can you do this? And no. And then it's like, can you give money to a particular um, candidate? And, you know, people are kind of like lulled into this, well, no, they can't do that. That's a public endorsement. And I'm like, well, yeah, they can. And they're like, well, what's the the difference? And I'm like, I, I can't give you a good reason for the difference that, you know, contributing money to some judges permitted to contribute money to somebody's campaign. I'm not sure why that isn't a public endorsement when other things um, are. I don't see I don't see the difference, but you know I'm operating with the way things currently are. And uh, I get it. I get it. To
4: and, 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 not, and not all the judicial canons are, writ- are written this way. There are some where they actually allow judicial officers to engage in campaign activities mm-hmm. and serve as candidates in a very traditional um, reciprocal arrangement. I do wish that the rules, the code, in that regard here in Arizona would be revisited, perhaps consideration for redrafting,
2: that's all. Do do, do I hear you volunteering to the Chief Justice to chair that committee?
4: (laughs) I have ideas, I'll leave it at that. So whether it qualifies me to chair it or not, I don't frankly know. Maybe there's a better person for that role. But at the very minimum, if it would gain some traction, I'll, I'll walk through that door that you opened. Would I be interested in participating actively? Absolutely. So.
2: There, there was, um, I wanna say like, oh, there there was a task force that was formed um, several years ago in response to a challenge to the code that wound its way up through a federal court that challenged various provisions of Canon Four. Uh, and uh, ultimately, um, that ended up getting resolved uh, without, they, they had, the Supreme Court had created the committee in anticipation that the federal courts might strike down some of those provisions. Um, and so we needed to basically have a, a plan in place to come up with alternative provisions. Ultimately, the, the federal court did not strike down those provisions. And then, sort of around the same time, the the Supreme Court issued some opinions regarding other jurisdictions that came into play. Um, But after that, you know, after that federal case was resolved, there was some discussion by members of that committee as to whether or not there should, you know, be a look at a wholesale look at the code on certain things because there are currently, right now, some inconsistencies in the code. The one thing that was raised probably like five years ago was the whole issue between the Part C and the Part D judges, which now has been resolved thanks to Judge Adornado's rule change petition. Um, But some of the other things, like there's still a provision in there about, you know, the aggregate um, campaign contributions, which I don't even think exists in the statute anymore. So there was some, you know, question to the chief justice at that point in time of, do you want to leave this committee intact to look at some wholesale changes to the code? Do you want to appoint a committee to um, look at that? And there wasn't any traction. That's not to say that there, you know, that that couldn't be revisited. So um, I agree with you that there are probably some, you know, it's been now. The model code on which Arizona's current code is based came out in 2007. Arizona adopted a a good chunk of that model code in 2009 with some modifications, but that's now 12 years ago. Um, I I haven't heard that there's any um, activity nationwide to potentially um, come out with a new model code, but that doesn't mean that Arizona couldn't take a look at um, its own code. So, um, you know, certainly happy to, um, you know, see if there's any traction under the current Chief Justice uh, to see if he, you know, is willing to appoint a task force to take a look at some things, not only to resolve some just some inconsistencies in the code, but also to take a look at some of the other ones that seem, um, I guess, unworkable in light of practical situations. Maybe a better way to put
5: it. I was on that that task force. There was no appetite to treat elected judges different than appointed judges um, at, at all. Um, I suggested the petition thing that Judge Wismer brought up. I suggested that uh, JPs be allowed to serve as precinct committeemen if if they wanted to be. That went nowhere um a lot of other things went nowhere um it was a couple months ago but uh the uh, federal society locally sponsored a free speech and political dialogue kind of uh presentation panel and the chief justice was on the panel and i asked a series of i had three examples and the first one i thought would be an easy yes And the third one I thought would be a slam dunk no. What are something that a judge could say kind of in a public forum or to a partisan group like to a legislative district committee meeting or something like that. And the one that I thought would be an easy yes was I thought a, a JP could stand up and say, we need to register voters and get our party's message out and the Chief Justice was, uh, oh, no, that's a horrible thing that a judge didn't, you know, and a, you should never say that. And I was like, wow, okay, then I won't, I won't get to my next two then. Um, so even advocating on behalf of a of a political party's position on something um, was not something the Chief Justice thought was a good idea. Um, so I, I is there going to be movement under the current Chief Justice to do something? My guess is no. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have to not only run elections, we have to run an elections partisan. You know, we have to qualify to be on a, a partisan ballot. Um, we have to win a partisan primary. We have to, so, you know, it, it, it's always been this sort of, Disconnect that we pretend elected judges are the same as appointed judges for for a lot of ethical purposes, but I I don't see I I might draft something, but I I don't see any movement. um, From the top down, there may be something from the bottom up, but my guess is, I I think the case was Republican Party versus Minnesota. I I can't remember that the the one that we were worried the US Supreme Court was going to, to do something with. Um. At the time i think that was the name of the case I could be mistaken and there was a case out of florida too
2: mm-hmm.
5: where um and the campaign
2: contributions yeah, yeah
5: I can't. Yeah, but um yeah we were on the committee um there were jps from uh, uh pima county on the committee too um but there was uh, no movement to relax standards if that's the right way to phrase it <laughs> um for for elected judges at the time
4: but but that being said is there any harm in approaching the chief justice if it's been a while um for all you know when you put the feelers out you may be surprised to find oh my goodness there's a lot of undercurrent out there there's a lot of folks that would be interested in seeing whether arizona's canons on this issue are still relevant or maybe by looking at some um similar canons in other states where judicial officers might be treated differently as elected officials. Maybe it's time to just renew the review on it, the conversation on it, and see if maybe times have changed in Arizona such that the judicial code governing this issue might be considered antiquated and maybe one from a different state seems more acceptable in today's environment. Is there any harm in putting out the feelers?
5: No, and and I've written some stuff that I'll share with you that I just haven't that's been on the back burner. The one thing that everyone's afraid of is will become like Nevada, or we'll become like Texas. Anyone who's ever been to Las Vegas, um, where they've been happening to do judicial elections will be horrified by any of the television, television commercials or their vote for me, I'm the pro business judge. You know, I mean, it, it's just, it, it's you know, vote for me for Supreme Court. I'll be tough on crime. You know, it's it's you know I won't. You know, vote for me. I'll I'll enforce the death penalty in every case. It, it's it's just it's stuff that's way way over the line. And that and that's how you get maybe the the Ten Commandments judge from Alabama who keeps you know having ethical issues and stuff like that. I there, there has to be though, in my opinion, a balance between you know uh we can do some stuff but we can't do other stuff and sometimes it's confusing what we can and can't do and just going off the rails like the judges that elect their their, like the states that elect the supreme court uh by popular vote and in the you know they have fundraisers you know and it you know it takes two million dollars for supreme court seat and stuff like that that's what everyone is afraid of, and that's what everyone wants to avoid. But I think there is a, a happy medium between the, the two.
4: Sure, and, the, and, the, and one last thing though, is just to follow up on that, at the most basic level, recognizing that the we are allowed to run for partisan, in partisan races, uh, and I, I think everybody does. Um, so you're allowed to run in partisan races, but you're prohibited, as Judge Williams said, by the code, You're prohibited from serving in any capacity as part of the governing body, including at the lower levels of precinct committeemen. It's a very important job though, but uh, you're still prohibited from serving as part of the governing structure of the party you're allowed to identify with. It makes no sense. So, thanks.
2: Yeah, No, I, I, I certainly don't see the harm in reaching out to see if there's any um, any interest in, you know, looking at some revisions to the code. I mean, obviously, anything that a, a committee would come up with, you know, still has to uh, go through approval by the Supreme Court itself. They're, you know, free to accept or reject the committee's recommendations. But I certainly don't see the harm in maybe reaching out to see if there's any interest in forming a committee and getting stakeholders from uh, various groups to participate and see if there's you know some changes that could be made and, and and look at other states and maybe what's worked or hasn't worked um there so
1: well thank you uh so much to our guests uh, this was a a fabulous conversation I've, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback as as the morning has gone along so I really do want to thank uh, uh, April Elliott and Michael Devereaux for joining us this morning. And um, I was going to say, we look forward to working with you in the future. We, we don't look forward to getting mail from the Conduct Commission, but, but we do love positive interactions. So thank you so much for uh, being with us. Uh, and um, have a great day. Thank,
2: thank, you, thank you for you. having us.
1: Thank you. Now, now,
0: come on. Now, now, now,
1: now, 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 <laughs> not now.
0: it's not now. <laughs> no, no,
1: no. no. No, thank you. No, I thank you.
0: And again, I thank you.